This is Faith and Letters. I'm your host, Ben Bishop. Welcome to Season 2 of Faith and Letters, a podcast at the intersection of Christianity, the writing life, and the wide world of books. I'm so glad to be back with you. I can't believe it's been two years since the end of Season 1. For those of you who are new to the show, my name is Ben Bishop. I'm a writer and novelist, and this is basically a, a space where I have freewheeling conversations with folks across lots of different disciplines within publishing and writing, editors, essayists, columnists, novelists, uh, and also who are in some way connected to uh, any stream of Christianity, Orthodoxy, Catholicism, mainline Protestantism, Evangelicalism, and on and on and on. So ecumenical in that sense, that's one of the things I enjoy most, just getting exposed to uh, lots of different Christian perspectives. And then pretty pretty uh, big grab bag in terms of topics. So without further delay, I'd like to cover one order of business and then get right into this episode, episode one of season two. The order of business is just to mention briefly that since we last adjourned, I've published my second novel, Strike the Waters, which is a literary novel set in the near future, which follows a few days in the life of a war reporter who's been recalled from overseas to cover the assassination of the mayor of San Francisco, who's been killed by a militia group angry over a burgeoning water crisis in California. So if climate fiction or speculative fiction or really literary fiction are at all up your alley, I'd be so honored if you would check out the book. Again, it's called Strike the Waters. I wrote it over the last seven years or so. Maybe at some point I'll have somebody interview me about it for the show. That might be interesting. Um, But again, it's called Strike the Waters. And Without further delay, let me get into a brief intro to this episode, which featured novelist and musician John Darneal. John is best known, I think, for being the lead singer of a group called The Mountain Goats. They're an indie rock band that's been playing together for decades. They're wonderful. You should absolutely check them out. And we did talk a little bit about John's life, especially his life on the road with The Mountain Goats and interactions with fans. We spent more time, unsurprisingly, talking about his novels. His debut, uh, Wolf in White Van, was published in 2016 and was nominated for the National Book Award. We also spent some time talking about Devil House, his new novel, which actually just came out in paperback a month ago, and um, it's about a true crime writer. So John's work is idiosyncratic, very well-paced, beautifully written, but uh, as he describes it himself, he works in reveals, and it, there's sort of a metafiction element to a lot of his work. So I just really enjoyed talking with him. I found him to be gracious, at times a little almost contradictory in some ways or self-contradictory. You can be the judge of that. But it was so fun to laugh with him. Just felt like he was very candid and open and real. And I just enjoyed it so much. So I hope you do as well. Ladies and gentlemen, John Darneal. Hey, thank you so much, John, for coming on my show and giving me a little bit of your time. Of course. I'm just going to dive right in and share with you a somewhat serendipitous encounter that I had uh, yesterday with a dad, another dad on the sidewalk outside my son's preschool in which your work came up unexpectedly. And we'll just go from there. Um, I was, I picked up my son as I do on, on Tuesdays and there's this little, they call it the climbing tree. We go around the corner and the kids, even though they've been together for eight hours, want to continue playing. And so they climb in this neighbor's tree and I sometimes make small talk with the other parents. And it came out in the course of talking with a few dads that I was, that I have a podcast. And I said, yeah, you know, I have this podcast. I'm actually going to interview a guy named John Darneal tomorrow. And one of these other dads who's who's just sort of a, the barest acquaintance of mine, his face just lit up. And he said, he said, um, John Darneal of the Mountain Goats. Oh, that's so cool. Can I send you? I have a Mountain Goats playlist. Can I send it to you? 
just, and I said, yeah, sure, man, of course. And I gave him my phone number. And as he was texting me this like Spotify playlist, he said like uh, under his breath as an aside, he said, oh man, Wolf and White Van, so good. And I said, which is the name of your first novel for people who don't know. And, and I responded, I said, yeah, I, I just read it this last week and it was so good. I, I loved it. I was really enamored of it. And, you know, it was whatever, 5 p.m. West Coast time. You live on the East Coast. That's my understanding. You were doing something at 8 p.m., eating a bowl of chili, uh, tucking a kid into bed, reading a book, who knows. But at that time, what what <laughs> what feeling does it evoke for you as a person, as an artist to know? And I'm sure this maybe happens every day across the world for someone of your, your stature. Your work is relatively well-known. But what is just hearing that anecdote... What does it feel to know that like two dudes thousands of miles away who you've never met had this sort of like spark of joy as they talked about their experiences with your art? So it, it inspires a feeling of profound gratitude, but also of immediate caution. You know what I mean? Uh, because artists getting big headed about the effect their work has on others uh, is a very common story. And you understand it from the artist standpoint, you understand it from a listener standpoint, right? From a reader standpoint, from your early experiences reading and listening to music, you feel this awe of the stuff that, that resonates with you, right? And, uh, and uh, because we are, well, you could ask whether this is a native human tendency or a byproduct of the, of the cultures that we have built, right? But in any case, we're very personality and celebrity driven, right? And we think we like to, to, to ascribe uh, amazing person status to the authors and actors and singers who, who inspire us. So, you know, and it's very easy as, as the person on the other end of that, super easy to go, oh yeah, no, I did something amazing, <laughs> which like, I want to be, I will, I will die resisting that tooth and nail. I have whole shticks that I think people dislike when I say, you know, well, thanks so much for the kind words, you know, but if they tell me that I'm like, you know, great or amazing say no no <laughs> i'm i'm an architect right and you you like the house that i built and i'm profoundly grateful to have built a place where you were able to to do amazing stuff but you know but the the listener you know the word doesn't come to life until you read it and uh, and so so it's an amazing feeling but i'm also very careful to even approach it because i really think it's dangerous for artists to dwell too long if they especially if they write stuff that you know that that lives in an emotional space you want to be not thinking too hard about you know i mean people cry to my stuff right but if i think about that too long i'm a performer performers are inherently egocentric right it's like and part of the battle in this life is is knocking down the ego as best you can you know learning to put yourself last and uh and so yeah so i'm like i'm profoundly honored but i'm also like i won't say it makes me uncomfortable to hear the story but i try not to internalize it you know i i, I try to go well you know I, i'm so glad that, uh, that these people uh, love and experience my stuff. And like, you know, the first thing I think is like, name as many flaws in myself, silently to myself, you know, that I can think of, you know, you wanna be humble. It's important to stay humble. And, uh, and it's hard for performers to stay humble because they do things that resonate strongly with people. So you're wearing a, you're wearing a kind of artistic hair shirt at all times and just like mortifying your ego flesh. I am a Catholic, sir. I, uh, I, <laughs> I left the church years ago, but that doesn't change anything. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, there's a number of things in there that I resonate with. You know, that you've given so many interviews. There's no way that I could have read all of them, but I tried to read a number of them. You mentioned Joan Didion in, in, in a number of pieces, actually, but specifically at one point in, in terms of this idea that you're touching on there, whether it's like meeting your heroes or idolizing your heroes. I think you said something to the effect of, I love Joan Didion's work, but I don't think meeting her is going to like make me a better person. I actually have like a pretty fully formed resistance at this point to the idea of the phrase I always use is, is meeting my heroes. Because I think my general belief at this stage of my life is that the risk of it like damaging my experience of their work, if they turn out to be someone unpleasant or we just, you know, they're having a bad day, whatever. It's a mundane experience is much higher than the, than the, than the chance that it's somehow somehow going to really enhance my relationship to the work that I already love is that is that part of your your own personal uh, concern for folks? Do you want to almost like shield them from that and allow them to to just have the experience of the work and keep it very separate from yourself? No, it's that I want to challenge that idea because, like, obviously, 
you know, when you find out that somebody who made work you like did monstrous things, right? Then, then it's very hard to come back to the work then. Many people, uh, I think, you know, will have a hard time watching a Woody Allen movie, say, or Roman Polanski now, you know, and I get that, right? Because the, the stuff that's out about that is, you know, it, it just affects the work in, in some way. But if, if, it's, if it's how a person was when I, when I meet them, you know, uh, I, met, I met Bill Callahan, he's a very taciturn dude, but the, it in no way affects my work what the artist is like, unless they are a monster. Sometimes it'll seem like there's a disconnect, you know, if the, if the art is vivacious, you know, and the person is, is not, but then that makes total sense to me. So yeah, so I don't, I don't fret about, about that end of it. Uh, I just, you know, I do think there's a reason why there is a prohibition against idolatry, you know, in Exodus. And, uh, and the reason is people want to do some idolatry. Like it's just, it's indwelling. You want we want to find us an idol and worship that idol, right? The work is both a part of the person who made it and completely apart from that person who made it. They're not actually related in the end, right? Even though it's, it's the same as if here, I think this is a good example. If, if you have a child and the child is 25, right? And is an amazing person. And I, and I love, you know, a conversation I have with them. I'm unlikely to say, man, I got to meet that dude's parents. This, this is a great guy, right? You know, but that's exactly what you're doing if you want to meet the artist, right? The artist made a child, right? Raised the child. The child probably was fairly ugly to begin with in the case of art, right? It's like it came out pretty, pretty nasty. And then, but then because it's a piece of art instead of an actual human being, the artist like literally like takes scissors and some hammer to it and, 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 then, and then a chisel and then, and then, uh, and then some sandpaper and, and eventually comes up with something that is hopefully really nice that is, is the best that the artist can make it and then puts it in the world right well you want to meet the person who made that but the artist is only the parent the, the thing really at some point became its own thing and the artist knew enough about it to be guiding it along to where it was going you know but it, it says exactly nothing about a person that they made a good piece of art or a moving piece of art Maybe we'll come back to the whole idea of authorial intent and sort of the extent to which you can separate yourself out from your work. Because I, I almost feel like there's a there's another case to be made from from some of some of the opinions you've given over the years. Well, you can't hold me to anything I said before yesterday. Is the thing I'm I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a work in progress. I'm growing. And if these are interviews that are older than like five or six years, then that's a different me. If there if there are articles from before I was a parent, you know, I've experienced you experienced so much in the world of parenthood. You know, if there are articles from before I, I became successful enough that people really know my stuff who know nothing about me, then I'm a different person. You know, it's like uh, that's one problem with the digital archive is like, you know, 1996, you said this, dude, my 1996 self doesn't know anything. <laughs> it just knows nothing at all. He still speaks like he has a lot of authority because <laughs> I'm a dude. You know, it's like, that's what guys do is, you know, what you've asked me for my opinion, and I'm going to give it to you. But then at my age of 55, you go, oh, yeah, no. Dudes under 40 just are always running off the mouth and don't know anything. (laughs) (laughs) I'm doomed then. Um, (laughs) Well, you'll get wiser. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Let's talk about faith. It's already come up twice. We've talked about hair shirts and the book of Exodus. But I think there's this kind of sense in the air that you're a a religious guy. You have a rich spiritual life of some kind. And you you have talked up until the present. So we're within the five-year uh, range that you just cited. You, you've, you've continually talked uh, in interviews uh, about things like, you know, I left the Catholic Church a long time ago. Uh, oh, actually, I'm still a Catholic. You can never leave. Um, how would you describe How would you describe your faith or your spirituality or your religious life? Sort of what's the elevator pitch? Well, these days I just say I'm a Jesus guy, right? You know, uh, so, so that, I mean, what does that mean? I mean, I worship the risen Lord, uh, Jesus of Nazareth, a Palestinian man who, uh, who, you know, who claimed to be the son of God, but also said that we were all children of God, right? So uh, there's a lot of doctrine that I don't, uh, I mean, that, that would be as, as that, would, that would be the sum up there. You know, what, what does Jesus say? Jesus says to, to love your neighbor as yourself, and that that's the first and greatest commandment, and all the other, all the other commandments point toward that one, right? Uh, that's really all you need to know, Right. I, I don't. Uh, my friend Perry was the guy who turned me on to the the notion that you don't need the resurrection for Jesus to be God. Right. Uh, I, I get that a lot of Americans especially do need that, but you don't. Um, uh, and my time uh, in uh, ISCON, the International Society for Christian Consciousness, uh, Q 
cured me of the another a, a C.S. Lewis thing that I don't accept at all, even though it's a very clever um, framing. You know the Lord liar lunatic argument. Sure. Right. So in case you're listening, Jesus has to be one of those three things. Yeah. He claimed to be the Lord. So therefore he's either the Lord or he's lying or he's crazy. Right. Uh, C.S. Lewis says like, you know, uh, crazy or something worse. I forget what it is, but that's not true. <laughs> that's not true at all. Right. That's just a very narrow way of looking at the way people speak. You know, if you look at many of the, of the sadhus, the wise men of, of the Hindu tradition, there are plenty of people whose behavior is completely weird and who say that they are, are God. And maybe they are in that moment because God can't be limited by, Oh, you're one of these three terms. God isn't limited by language. God isn't limited by any of the rules that we have managed to come up with that we think we are divining from some divine architecture in a very enlightenment kind of way. You know, God isn't limited by these things. So, so Jesus can both be God incarnate and and a total madman, right? Which you know, I think his behavior suggests that he is. You know, uh, in, in a way, experiencing a completely different reality than anyone around him. You know, um, and that's enough to make you pretty outsider. But yeah, so my time in, in, in other uh, religions taught me that there's there's so many other ways you really don't have to be um, a prisoner of doctrine, right? Uh, and the Bible is clear about this, that, you know, uh, because they didn't have doctrine at that time, Paul is establishing it, right? But but you don't have to, all, all you need in your life is, is, is that, uh, I think John Crowder at some point, uh, who's an evangelist who I don't agree with on everything, but, uh, but he was portraying Jesus as a drug at one point, you know, uh, and it was very youth ministry. It was like, you know, they were taking hits of Jesus. Right. And so, but I think it's a potent way of thinking about things, you know, uh, that, uh, that, that you get that Jesus in you and it changes the way you look at things. It, 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 you know, it doesn't cloud your vision. It clarifies it. Right. But it also means you're looking at the world in a different way. Uh, and that, that's who I am. How it informs my life is that I, you know, I strive to be a better me. I try to understand, you know, I mean, there's some real basic, Christianisms that are that are good for me, you know. There's a bumper sticker that says, "Next time you feel perfect, try walking on water." Well, whether Jesus of Nazareth walked on water or not, that's a potent story, you know. To say whatever you're doing, think about a guy, you know, who did those things more perfectly than you, right? Think uh, in logic. If you conceive, if you can conceive of something, then it's considered possible, right? Uh, so. So that story is so potent because its its function should be, whether you believe a word of it or not, to humble you. There was actually, in, in the course of preparing for this interview, a, a long story I read about what sounded like a, a, a general period of your, of your life, or at least kind of your, your touring life with the mountain goats. This is, I guess, maybe, let's say, roughly 10, 15, more like 15 years ago where you you had reached a point <clears throat> where you seemed sort of burned out on some of these just intense, almost like vicariously traumatic interactions that you'd have night after night where folks wanted to kind of um, just kind of unburden themselves to you at the end of a concert, and they would wait around. And specifically what made me think about uh, just the experiences I'd, I would sometimes see take place on Sunday mornings was... Um, at the churches that I grew up was was how you talked about um, fans, presumably young fans, teens, people in their early 20s, sort of like, you know, kind of like hanging off to the side and wanting to be like the last person to talk to you. Who did, who did I tell that story to? I wonder. It was a long piece in New York Magazine. Yeah, that's Stephen. He came down here for a week. He's, he's a good guy and a great writer. Yeah, it was it was a really evocative piece, but it did as I was thinking about it um, while kind of preparing, I was like, man, that almost sounds like what would happen at these relatively large churches. And I, for some reason, I just already sense you cringing. You're going to cringe at this, but I'm just going to say it. It almost, it almost felt like a, a parallel. Well, to finish the thought, it, it, it seemed to evoke for me these memories I have of people sometimes just sort of like openly awkward or really hurting people who were, who were so, almost desperate to talk to the senior pastor at the church that they would just wait down there at the front of the sanctuary, you know, for 30 minutes until he was done talking to everybody and then just have kind of a tearful interaction with him. It felt, yeah, just like there was some kind of parallel. Did it ever feel to you like there was some kind of like pastoral quality that people were looking for or like what kind of comfort did you perceive people to be looking for when they when they wanted to have those interactions with you which can i, I can only imagine just got really exhausting after a while so there's a lot in there and i want to get to the question first before the other stuff that comes in or i won't get back to it but like 
I really believe what I was talking about, the work versus me, that it relates to exactly to what you're talking about. What these people are wanting to convey is what they have done with the thing that I made that was useful or helpful to them. Now that sounds kind of, I'm using the word anodyne, right? It sounds a little sterile, right? It's like, it doesn't sound like a big emotional thing, but it is, right? Uh, it's, it's, if, you, if you find something that soothes you, that, that reduces your pain or allows you to experience your pain in a safe place, in a safe manner, it's a profound experience, right? You might do that with a song or with a book or in therapy, but a lot of people don't find that in a book or in therapy or in a film. And the music that we make, often specifically experience of hearing it live, can lead to those sorts of cathartic experiences of, of self-knowledge and self-awareness and of feeling seen, right? That's what I'm trying to do with a lot of my stuff, is to make a, a space in which that occurs, right? Yeah. When I say that, it's very intentional. What I'm trying to do is to make a space in which that occurs, not to do that to somebody, right? Because that would be this arrogance that I don't believe in at all. I don't think I did a thing to a person when I deployed this phrase. I did it to myself when I deployed the phrase, I write a phrase, oh, that sounds pretty good. That's probably, people will really respond to that probably, you know, but I don't, I'm not sitting there trying to, uh, exact to, to elicit a response from a certain type of person or anything like that. That would just this arrogance I'm trying to avoid. Um, but, but yeah, but I used to, to, to do the merch table till the end of the night. Uh, and I did sort of feel like, you know, if I was going to go out there and, and sit, then it was a good use of my time on this earth to sort of be uh, a space for that. But over time, I discovered that like, I, I don't think those interactions you were talking about this earlier, are ever going to be what the person wants because they're thinking that it's me that that they had some sort of encounter with but the encounter was with what i did right it really it, when i say it has nothing to do with me yeah i did it right but it's not me it's my child right and so but the other thing is like when you talk about how how that that article right the thing is there was a lot i wasn't telling steven in that article or that he knew that i had asked him not to print because I was going through a lot of pain that year, uh, especially I had tendonitis in both wrists and I was afraid that I was not going to be able to play anymore. And I had just the previous year had this experience of tinnitus in my writer, which I still have. And I was in a, in a state of terror, right? That, you know, that if I can't play, and I hired, you may, if people who saw me on that tour, so I, I, I brought out another guitarist guy just in case I couldn't play. As it turned out, you know, I'm fairly... I'm tougher than I knew, and it doesn't matter. I'm, I'm actually having intense hand pain right now. I, I hurt myself running at my left hand. I can't even close my fist, but I can close it hard enough to play guitar, so I'll be all right. You know, I'm going to see a hand guy next week. I've become, I'm kind of heart made of granite now, but, uh, but, but at the time, I didn't want to talk about it, but I was, I was suffering. I was in a very, very, very bad place personally, and, and I didn't want to talk about it to anybody, and, and the presence of a lot of people who, you know, who sort of, you know, what they want from me is the directness that you tend to get from me if you're talking to me. That that was very intense for me at that time, and that's what he saw. And you become a kind of receptacle for their emotion, some of which is negative or painful. Yeah, well, they're trying to express something, and it seems like, I get it. I write to people who make art that I love, and I say, I cannot for the life of me convey to you what that meant to me. It happens to me less often because most of the people I read are dead. And so it's like, I don't, you know, I can't really say anything to them except at a seance, you know, but, uh, but, uh, but, you know, I've, I've met, uh, I, I've met plenty of people whose work meant the, meant the world to me, um, you know, but, but I, but I also spent a lot of time thinking about this, how it's like, you know, to look at them and, and think, oh, they're, they're holy. I mean, people had this experience. I had this experience this week when Joni Mitchell showed up at the Newport Folk Festival, right? Now, there are millions of us whose experience of Joni Mitchell's music is almost primal on an artistic level. Like Joni Mitchell opens the doors to so much inside of so many people to have written Both Sides Now alone, a song which any young man who hears it and doesn't think it's corny is a monster, you know, and any older man who hears it and doesn't think it's a profound reservoir of feeling is also a monster, <laughs> so, you know, uh, and and these days, you know, when 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 that song comes up, you can't you, you can't but respond. Joni Mitchell is just Joni Mitchell. You know, she uh, she's as human and fallible as anybody else, and and I imagine she's probably uh, kind of hard to hang out with. You know, it's like she knows how good she is, um, uh, but but uh, but but that's that's the axis there. It's like when people refer to her as Joni, 
profoundly uncomfortable with this. You know, I don't know her. I'm not going to call her Joni. I call her Joni Mitchell or Mitchell, the way you do an author, you know. Um, but we're in this culture where everybody uh, sort of has this notion that if you like somebody's work, you are familiar with them. Uh, and uh, and it doesn't matter how many interviews you do. It doesn't matter how you're not. You don't. That relationship does not exist. The relationship is between you and the work, right? Uh, and that's why I just want to be. I don't go to the signing table anymore, as I sort of feel like it. It 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 fosters this this false relationship, which is also a relationship that on stage, you role play that you sort of you pretend that you know you are the vessel up there, right, for all this feeling, and you and you personify it. But I sort of try to. I hope that everybody in the room understands that like, you know, the band is doing something much greater than anybody in it, right? I'm sort of, I'm the conductor in a way, you know, and conductor in a sense, in a sense the way you conduct electricity, right? I want to, man, I want to start talking about your books. I want to pivot here, but I cannot resist pulling on this thread just a little bit more because it feels like there's this tension that's, you know, maybe it's, it's unresolvable, but you yourself, you just a word that I would use or was going to, to, to use in posing this, you know, one side of this tension to you, which is, which is a vessel, you're a vessel for the story. It's almost like the, the Homeric idea yeah. of the, the muse is speaking through you. And then well, Homer was a smart guy and that yeah, he was possibly and several then, smart guys. <laughs> <laughs> and then, so you're the vessel, but then, I mean, you've talked repeatedly, you feel free to feel free to recant, feel free to refute this, but like, it seems like there is a, a persistent thread in which you've said, actually, as you've gotten older, it's gotten stronger that you, that you, you recognize there is inevitably something of the artist in their work. And you can't just say to someone, uh, you know, let's say in the context of uh, a song that you've written and, and they've read something into it that you're very uncomfortable with, uh, you know, it's, it seems like some of what I've read indicates that you feel like someone's going to make their own meaning of your work. You're not there to explain it, but there is something of you in it i guess that's the question like what what is that to the extent that that's the other side of this coin like what does it mean that there is in the art that you john darneal make some residue of john darneal the actual guy uh i mean the thing is i i absolutely believe that now i think you can't there the sense that all work is autobiographical is true but i, I would extend that also beyond uh creative work you know i, I mean thinking when i if I, if I wash dishes, uh, there's something in me in those too, right? Anything you do, you, you impart your, yourself to it, you know? Uh, so, so, but in work, I think you wind up talking about yourself no matter what, right? Uh, no matter what story you're telling, you are the one who is trying to imagine the other person in there and you wind up, you know, that person's reactions wind up being what your reaction would be if you were them, right? And so you are play acting all your characters in some sense. So yeah, you are sharing of yourself, but it's the same as it's you know, uh, it's the same as a, as, a, as a conversation. You know that 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 you you share and and the person you're speaking with, you have no real control over what they're going to do with the information, you know, and how they're going to respond to it, and you let go of that control and you let it flow, right? Uh, and and that's that's the nature of of writing music. But presumably, you would, I mean, would you subscribe to the idea that someone? who has a conversation or certainly a number of conversations with you <clears throat> can, as we say, get to know you through those conversations in a way that it sounds like you don't really think they can get to know you through your art. No, I mean, what they know is the artist me, you know, they know, you know they know part of me, yeah. you know, uh, and, and that part of me has a lot of other parts of me in it. But, uh, but, but yeah, I mean, the other thing is like, I don't, I don't know why that's important at all. You know, I, I don't, I, I don't really know. I don't understand why it has to terminate at relationship. That seems a very, a very post eighteen forty way of thinking of it. It's like it doesn't. It just doesn't matter. It's also it's quite different with fiction. It seems like I mean, there's it's 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 a very different feel if you're reading, let's say, someone's memoir. Um, and let's so which are also fiction. Well, so. okay, <laughs> <laughs> they are. Yes. And they, they all are. So. That's, that's what's really funny about the present. I mean, there's a there's a craze for memoir right now, and people pretend that that it's somehow less literary and somehow realer. I mean, people have this thirst for 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 so-called reality, and reality isn't lived on the page or 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 in the or in the bitstream. It's 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 what you're doing out there in the physical world, you know. And and a memoir is stylized, even the ones that are supposed to be you know, very raw and self-revelatory, 
you have to curate it or it's chaos because lives aren't narratives. Lives do not have narratives. We impose those narratives on them. Didion, we tell ourselves stories in order to live. Right? Well, let's pivot to your novels. Let's do it. A lot of your characters are teenagers. They're, they're in youth, adolescence. They're in that phase of life where a lot of you know, 20th, 21st century Americans tend to forge these white hot connections with music and literature and, and movies and art. And I just, I'm, I'm curious, like how, as someone who wrote these books in your forties and fifties, completely aside from the extent to which there is in fact, any autobiographical sort of root in, in any of these characters, but what is, what has the process of writing and sort of inhabiting those characters been like for you in terms of how it has has uh, evoked or forced you to sort of like think back about your teen age or or younger self has that been painful or uh, sort of like fondly nostalgic what, what was that like it's very interesting to me that we talked about just we talked about and you you landed on how i feel about it right uh which is interesting to me because uh, I don't you know it's I, I'm usually I'm thinking more about the the several hundred adolescents I worked with in the course of my career as a nurse right um, I'm bringing myself into it you can't help it right but my own experiences are fairly you know they're unique and they're not they're not universalizable really uh, whereas uh, I saw many similar stories and I also occasionally am privy to I've had uh, patients seek me out to send me a note you know and that's an incredible honor um, so those are the stories I'm thinking. I, I I saw a number of things, and I got older. You know, when I'm writing about adolescence, I'm not writing from the perspective of the adolescent. Although I think I'm, I think I'm fairly one of my gifts. If I have any gifts, is is to be able to articulate other people's perspectives fairly well in a way that resonates with people who have that perspective. You know, uh, and uh, whether it's a person who, you know, uh, is disfigured, or whether it's a person who is younger, I'm I'm, I'm fairly I'm able to inhabit another perspective. That, that's one of the things that I do. Um, and, uh, and so a lot of people ask me that. And it's like, it's something, maybe it's a blind spot for me because I don't really think that I have that many adolescents in my books. There are, there are none in, in uh, Universal Harvester. There's a, there's a kid who's college age, but uh, you know, that's a kid to me because <laughs> I'm, I'm as old as dirt. But Kurt Vonnegut said high school is about as close to the core of the human experience as I think you can get, right? And I think high school was really important for me. Uh, it was just a time of, of great turbulence, you know. Um, you know, and I think there's also this sort of cultural imperative post Elvis to be experiencing youth as sort of like the prime of your life, which I, you know, I, 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 I hope if I can divest even one person of that opinion, uh, that perspective, I'll be, I'll have done good work because like my fifties my are kicking ass. I, I, I wish everybody could experience being in their fifties, you know, and, uh, and, and know how good it is. Please, I'm I'm ripe. I'm ripe for that. Oh, it's fantastic. No, that's so encouraging because you get far enough away. It's like, oh man, this is the 20th anniversary of you know, like high school graduation. I'm going bald. I've never felt more tired in my life. Is my life over? So, well, here's the thing. I'm, this is where it's unfair for me to say this because my hair is. <laughs> I, I'm not perfect, but my hair is. My, oh my hair gosh. is probably the most perfect thing in this world, and so it's just you know, it is a gift to this world. So. So when you have my hair, it's very hard to, to, to share that kind of perspective. <laughs> but, but no, this is the thing is like, if you do the, the sort of spiritual work of, of, of challenging your own perspective and shaping a perspective, you know, a, um, a faith, you know, not necessarily a faith in God, but, you know, you could say an ideology or a philosophy. I don't like those words so much as, you know, your, your faith is where you stand. Your faith is how you look at things. Right. And so, if you if you have one of those that's both fluid and fairly grounded uh and there's no contradiction there because rivers and streams run in the earth so, uh if uh if you have one that's both fluid and fairly grounded um grounded and fairly fluid uh you know then then aging becomes a real delight because the younger you is still alive in you at all times he doesn't go anywhere sometimes you wish he would you know because you come to understand how foolish or harmful he was, you know, yeah. and regret those things, uh, you know, and, and try to try to patch patch up the road where you can, uh, but uh, you know, make amends, like they say in, in the recovery programs. But uh, but but it's just it's better to be old. <laughs> it's, it's much better. Uh, 
uh, you know, it, it, it's just, you get a little more, well, you have more, you know, you, you, you have more in terms of, you, you have everything that ever you ever experienced, plus the things that are still coming. Although I think my absolute resistance to actual nostalgia, I write about the past a lot, and then people say you're nostalgic. I'm like, well, no, the past, the past is always present, uh, you know, so, so therefore to talk about the past is not necessarily to be nostalgic, um, you know, but I, I do always resist. I don't revisit the things of the past. I don't listen to the music that I liked when I was young. Generally speaking, I'm always seeking out new stuff and having new obsessions and stuff like that. I think it's a very healthy practice to do. And you have to start it as a reactionary practice because, you know, it can't be denied that when you hear the songs that you formed connections with when you were 17, those songs hit you like a bolt of lightning. You know, they, 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 gra they grip you at a place that it's very hard to locate later in life. But I just totally spent over most of my 30s going, nope, not listening to any of that stuff. I don't need to. I already knew that stuff. Once in a blue moon, pull out Blue by Joni Mitchell or my Steely Dan records, or my Stockholm Monsters records, the ones that had you know been incredibly important to me. But uh, but I would generally avoid it. I treat it like an incredibly rich dessert that you only have once in a while. You know, huh. uh, and uh, and I think it's a healthy practice that you know that that's important with art to be looking forward and understanding what a gift it is that we have this vast universe of art that we will never scratch more than the top 0.000001% of uh, in our lives, you know? And so you remain open to that. And then the same is true of everything else in life, of food, you know, relationships, uh, perspectives, you know, there's this banquet that the world is. Oh, and it's also a nightmare hellscape at present, but what can you do? <laughs> you know, you talked about you you know somewhat obliquely referenced that you saw some things i actually worked in a psychiatric ward at one point myself um and i saw some things and between wolf and white van and devil house there is uh you know there are suicide attempts there are descriptions of women you know posing in hardcore pornography there are multiple brutal stabbing deaths and murders there's heavy stuff, and I'm curious what your experience of writing, let's say, some of those more explicit or difficult or viscerally um, kind of dark scenes is like. Is, is there some kind of personal cost to you? Do you, well, let's start there. What is, what is writing that stuff like for you? I, so I'm sorry. <laughs> the, like, the, for example, the list of porn titles in... Um, in Devil House, I just enjoyed writing that so much. I, I, I that was so fun, and, and rearranging the titles. If you read it out loud, there's a poetry to it. There's a rhythm to it. You know, picking which ones to keep, which ones to throw away, which made up ones, which ones to make up, and which ones to, um, you know, to pull by searching on the internet for '80s porn titles, right? And, uh, uh, and so it was just a blast. And like, and actually, uh, it was something I had an argument, not an argument, but uh, it, it was a point with my editor because he thought it was too long. And I was like, oh, no, the whole point is that, like, by the end, of it, you're supposed to feel kind of really dirty, you know. And uh, I said, yeah, no, I think you could get there earlier. I was like, I don't know, man. I don't know. And I think I might have, like, cut one or two of the the more brutal ones. Like, there were some. Yeah, no, I know I did because uh, I, I talked with a friend who has a similar, a similarly high tolerance for uh, that that kind of stuff to go, they're making me cut out this one. I won't say it on your podcast, <laughs> but uh, but uh, you know uh, the the point was that it'd be brutal, and it is a pleasure as an artist to say, well, I, I want to elicit a brutal effect and be brutal about it. Right? It, it was uh, the writing of the of the um, uh, the murders. You know, uh, those were it was very intense, but it is also like surfing. You know, it was very, I'm way on top of this wave and then letting it carry some, the part that was hard to do, uh, the part that, you know, that I get emotional about was, uh, uh, Diana Crane's letter, you know, um, that's, uh, that, that, that's still, that's a hard, you know, the stuff that's emotional is what is painful for me. Physical stuff, you know, I mean, <laughs> I, uh, uh, the physical world is, a is, is, uh, is Maya, right? It's illusion, right? It's still very real because we can feel it and be harmed by it, right? But at the same time, it's plastic. It's, uh, it's, it's, which I don't mean in this dismissive hippie sense of plastic, it's plastic, it's malleable, it's shapeable, right? And, uh, and so that's a pleasure as an artist. It's clay, right? It's clay. So you're, you're making shapes come out of the clay with language, right? And, uh, but the emotional part, feeling the pain of, 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 uh, of Jesse's mom that, that 
it's just painful to think about still it's like that i think i did some of my best work there and uh and i and it, it it was very painful uh, it was hard you can only imagine and you can imagine and it's horrifying as a parent to imagine and it is it's difficult um i mean okay so the element of play the, there's obviously a playfulness there that you're talking about in writing some of those scenes play in general in your work is actually a big theme and there and, and cleverness too i mean there's this there's so many things we could talk about and i'm you know people who don't want spoilers can can pause now and come back especially as regards devil house but i, I will say regarding devil house that if you are not wanting the spoilers you should pause because uh I, I work in reveals in my books like the books are structured around reveals i don't know if it matters that much no it does i think it does take time. time well no i don't know i don't know if it does it depends on the reader well, right. it's, it if you, if it, so. yeah, if you're not big on spoilers, it, it this, the book will be spoiled, <laughs> yeah. but if you, I actually want to just, I want to talk about this, like this nested quality. And this was, this was related to the idea of reveals actually, but like in, so Wolf and White Van is actually both books are sort of about stories within stories in Wolf and White Van, uh, the, the central character is running this male, based you know physically snail mail based role-playing game or choose your own adventure kind of a game in devil house the the conceit is that it follows um a true crime writer so it's like his a lot of the book deals with his process of writing a book so it's a novel about a guy writing a book um what, what is it about that device that is fun or interesting to you to write I don't know because often when I hear that that's what's going on in a book or movie I go ah nah, come on keep your metafiction away from me. <laughs> so, but, uh, you know, I, I have an attitude about it, but then I, I wind up doing it always. <laughs> and so, um, uh, you know, I think it's a way of, uh, because I, because we're not living in the 19th or 18th century and I can't address the reader directly. So I want to show them stuff, you know, and the best way to show it is to have a text, you know, that say, Oh, well, here's this other thing that my dude was looking at, look at what's on it, you know? Uh, and, and that's a way of introducing stuff without, uh, you know, it's just a way of, of bringing in more stuff, you know, like it's a way of getting the characters and the situations on stage. Uh, and it's a vivid way because uh, we are all engaging with stuff all the time. It's usually media in my books. It's, it's a book or it's a movie, you know, or it's a game. It's something you can, you can know what it is. You can imagine yourself in it. You can imagine that it existed. I can describe its cover to you. Right. Um, and, uh, and then, then you can imagine it, right. But also I'll do the thing that will also do the thing that I do in music that I was talking about the, the sort of vector theory that that I can describe it to you, but it, but you're going to bring something to it that I can't control, right? And that's the the thing you already thought about. What if there was some strange thing on a videotape? The thing you always thought about uh, a rack of pornography, right? And so I get to elicit something in you that belongs to you, right? Uh, that that I don't control, right? Um, and uh, uh, and and that that to me is fun. I mean, look, the thing is like, you know, I say I try to be humble, but the reason I try to be humble is because uh, authors are doing this thing where they are hoping that the thing they make uh, causes a muscle to jump, you know. Uh, there, there's, a, there's a, you know, I imagine if you are a surgeon, right, that when you cut open somebody's body and you learn this, it's like, oh, if you touch here, the muscle over here, the muscle in their face will jump, right? I bet you doing that is a pretty incredible feeling, you know, it's a pretty... It's a feeling of, of, of uncomfortable power, I would imagine. Uh, and doing art is like that. We say, well, if, I, if I do this, some people are going to have some responses, you know, and, uh, and in books, it's really fun because you get to really take your time with it, you know, and, 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 you know, for me, the only way I can really do it is if I can manage to get that response out of myself. I can't control what it's going to be. But, uh, but if I'm writing, when I was writing the, the, what I called the cleansing of the bodies in part uh, two, you know, um, uh, when I was getting really uncomfortable about the, the, the body fluids uh, sluicing in the bags, you know, then I felt, wow, that's, that's harsh. You know, it's like, although it was, you know, I mean, obviously for obvious reasons, uh, talking about Jesse's home situation was considerably more painful for me. That was, and it's drawn from experience. It's like the, 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 the scene over the beef stew and stuff like that. These are, I'm, I'm pulling from, from vivid scenes that I know and remember. To the extent that we've spent the entire interview talking about cultural artifacts um i want to i want to just kind of tie things up by asking you about the idea of of culture 
generally, and and let me animate this by by mentioning that I had a conversation with a, a Christian film critic a few years ago, and I referenced maybe this is a phrase from the world of evangelicalism. I've certainly heard it a lot, but it's this idea of engaging the culture, as it is sometimes said, engaging the culture. Yes, I like this phrase. Certainly, in the context of my childhood, there was this idea, you know, along with the idea of like evangelism or proselytizing and telling people about Jesus, trying to convert them. There was, I think, in the water uh, of the of that world, um, this idea of like that will be, I mean, it's, you know, it's derived from, a, in, its, in its best intention, I think, from biblical ideas like being salt and light, that we would somehow, uh, through our presence, and by extension, I think maybe for, for artists who identify as Christians, that our art will somehow leaven the world, that it will somehow, uh, you know, engage with the culture in a way that is, that brings truth, beauty, goodness, whatever. But this, this phrase in this conversation sort of, my experience was that it activated her and she became annoyed almost in a way that implied that she didn't, it's almost like she didn't think there was such a thing as a mainstream culture. Um, to me, this idea of like a mainstream culture, let's maybe just, you know, for our purposes, we can talk about the United States in 2022. I, I think there is something, however broad and, and amorphous, that we could identify as a mainstream culture. That's what makes, uh, you know, things like or terms like subcultures mean anything. Um, and it feels, it, it, it often feels to me like there's some kind of parallel there with the idea, the biblical idea, or the t- uh, the idea from the teachings of Christ of the world, although I don't think those map onto each other perfectly, because I think there's plenty about mainstream culture that's not inherently evil or bad. Um, but it, it just feels like you traffic in uh, the world of subcultures on, on many levels, both just sort of in the worlds you actually inhabit as a, as a creative, as an artist, some of the things you've been candid about as being your own personal interests, and then within the context of the novels you've written, there's just so much about many different subcultures, heavy metal, role-playing games, indie rock, on and on and on, we could go on. I, the question that I would like to ask you in light of that long prompt is, do you have like a, a conscious feeling about the role that your art plays or that that you hope it plays in culture or is that just completely something that you have absolutely no control over or aspiration toward is 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 the mainstream culture something to resist or is it just you know i mean i have my own thoughts about mainstream culture uh i suspect it's a fiction but uh but but i don't i try not to think at all about about what my art's going to do, except that I hope it's useful to somebody, you know, it's like, that's beyond that. And when I say somebody, I mean, one person, you know, uh, uh, I, I don't, I, it's impossible for me to imagine writing something and going, well, no, wh- what's the position of this going to be in the world? You know, I can't, that's not, I know there's people who do that, uh, and, and God bless them all. Uh, but, uh, but I can't, I mean, I just can't conceive of, of, of the stuff I'm making still being good. <laughs> if I'm thinking like that, you know, it's like, I can't, I, I, I have to, I have to just be thinking of the stuff. I have to be, I have to be imagining that it won't be published, which is a very, a thing I love to do. I love to, to, to say, well, you know, I'm not going to do anything with this. This is not going anywhere. I'm, I'm, I'll, I'll put this in a file. Uh, I won't release this. I love to say that to myself over and over again. Uh, because it frees you to just have a, a mental zone where you can like, well, I can just write whatever feels truest and I don't have to worry about it being sellable. Because then the work has the solitude that solitude that it needs to become what it needs to be, right? It needs solitude. It needs, when I see people like live blogging their writing, I cannot imagine this. Yeah. I can't, I mean, I, I, I want, and, and everybody's got their own process, so good luck to them. But like, but but there's, you know, the the more... <laughs> Almost the dad in me wants to be like, what are you doing to your book? Why are you talking about it as you're writing it? I can't even imagine. It's like, I cannot imagine. Uh, it, utterly unimaginable uh, position to be in. It's like, is it because as soon as you expose it to light, you change something about it, right? The, and, and if you're enjoying where it's going, or even if you're curious about where it's going, the second it gets exposed to the light, it's it's going to be partially developed. You know, it's uh, now, now people like have ideas. Film. It is. Um, and well, so, so interesting to me, though, because like, you know, George, are you familiar with George Saunders? No, I mean, I know his name, but I haven't read his work. He's a short story writer. Um, 
he basically says like i his his view as i understand it is like the story at its most entertaining is like it for him that dovetails with the the best version of the story that he can write and so he actually even says explicitly in a piece i recently read an interview where he's like you know if i when i think about like okay this is going to appear in the new yorker that helps me thinking about the reader sort of attending to how the reader is going to experience this story gives me juice or whatever it helps me you know like how can it be how can i serve them and make this the most entertaining story i can is that sort of at odds with your philosophy because it sounds like if you let that light in or that thought in um, or i guess it just sounds like the opposite of what you're saying where you almost have to pretend to yourself that you're not even going to no publish i have to <laughs> i told you i'm catholic I have to begin with the supposition that I am not worthy. Like I, I and, and of the New Yorker, my God, I mean, it's like really, I'm going to sit there going, "Oh, the New Yorker's going to probably publish." No, I have to be writing as if no one's ever going to publish it, and and uh, and and I have to be writing on the assumption that it's going to be rejected, right? Uh, uh, that that that's you know that that I have to please somebody, and that somebody is standing between me and anybody else. Uh, ever reading it that that person is sean mcdonald my editor at present but i can i can find other people <laughs> if i don't have sean to be the ones who i imagine are like you know are, are are the are the gatekeeper you know but uh but but yeah i i, I don't yeah to imagine the audience is one uh, a hubris that i don't that i don't participate in my my assumption is that i have to earn the audience every time right uh, on the on the strength of the work itself and i also want to write something that i'm gonna say you know, in the event that it, it doesn't come out, well, it was still good, still good, you know. Um, so you're, are you the audience then in that sense? I mean, like as you're feeling yeah. through a draft and you're trying to get, I mean, you know, on some level you have to answer some basic version of like, is this good or is this good enough? Like, is it like, well, it's good enough for me? Yeah, I mean, I, I sort of feel like I am an imaginary reader. I'm sort of role-playing a reader, you know. Uh, and when it reaches me, then I have to imagine that somebody else is like me you know, uh, and, uh, and, and will be reached in a similar way. Uh, you know, uh, but, but yeah, I, 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 I mean, the thing is, if I'm writing an article, I've written articles, I wrote a, wrote a big article for Harper's and then, then you know who you're writing for. If it's different if you are, if you have an assignment, you know, uh, then, then it's different. Uh, but, uh, but in writing fiction, I have to be alone in the world of the book. I have to be not thinking in any way about its position in the world. Uh, it, it has to be discreet for me. Many heartfelt thanks to John Darnell for coming on the show. Faith in Letters is a production of Fax Animus Studios. Our production assistant is Tess Seabright, fact-checking by Dean Gilbert, and special thanks to Lydia Bradley.